so incredibly much is happening. That transition is massive for a baby. When a baby is born and we are in there vigorously rubbing them, shaking them, spanking them, hanging them upside down, how can this poor body of a brand new baby go through this incredible transition that it has to make smoothly when there's so much disruption? Barbara, you had told us about a woman whose placenta took a very long time to come out. This will curl a provider's hair. Um, It was six hours. So there was no urgent medical situation at hand, which I think is the first thing we all have to appreciate because they're rushing women now. They're just pressuring them and rushing them and tugging and giving them fundal massage. I never cut the cord until the placenta delivered and after the placenta delivered. This is the most important, most critical period in every human being's life. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. (laughs) Good day, good morning, good evening, wherever you are. This is Barbara Harper coming to you from Boca Raton, Florida. Um... I am privileged to be with uh, with uh, Tricia and and Cynthia uh, down to birth. And um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the founder and director of Waterbirth International. And this is, this is a historic year um, because um, I started researching waterbirth in 1983. So this is our 40th year. This is my 40th year of of basically focusing my whole entire life around labor and birth and water. So I'm excited to talk about different issues today. So let's get into it. So Barbara, this is the third time we're recording with you. You were the star of our episode 100, where you taught us all about water birthing, which is one of the top episodes we recommend personally to our clients and anyone else who's listening. And then you came back for a really interesting discussion in episode 122. We called it Provider Green Lights, in which you shared how you travel the entire world, educating and bringing water birthing as an option for women everywhere with your key objective of educating the nurses and doctors who are supporting those women, because the problem begins with the lack of understanding and knowledge in those medical providers, and you've brought them to tears at your workshops, and you've converted them and changed them with scientific and spiritual knowledge. And you've been so wonderful to support us on our Patreon live stream a couple months ago (laughs) so that all of our followers could meet you and spend time with you. And we're just always so grateful to you. So today we're delighted to have you back as always. And this time the conversation was precipitated by a question we received on Instagram that I didn't really feel I could answer. The question was, Can you birth your placenta in the water? Should you birth the placenta in the water? Should you not birth it in the water? At my own two births, I was asked to get out of the water before the placentas came out. So it's easy for me to assume that was the quote right thing to do, but I would never assume that. So I reached out to you and we decided that we would have you answer us all here in this episode. So thank you for being here. And what what do you want to 
What do you want to tell us about that? Well, that is a great question to start off. And my immediate answer to the 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 person that sent that question in is um it's it should be up to the mother. However, when I teach two providers about making the decision for active management of third stage or um expectant management of third stage, you have to start prenatally. You have to you have to start your decision making process with um if it's a, a multiparous woman, if she's had more than one baby, you look at her previous births. And did she have any any difficulties with birthing the placenta? You also have to go back and start examining the research on why we do active management. I don't want to interrupt, but can we, before we go further, because I know once we get started, we're going we're gonna to go deep on things. Can you explain the difference between active management and expectant management of the placenta? And I was just going to go there, Tricia, and I want Perfect. you to jump in whenever from your nurse midwifery experience and what the what the factors are expectant management is i expect a physiologic third stage i've had a a woman that's has a physiologic labor everything's been normal she she's had a physiologic second stage baby's come out beautifully there's not been any problems whatsoever and i expect a physiologic third stage that the placenta is going to detach from the wall of the uterus typically on the third contraction after the birth of the baby it's the biggest contraction of the whole entire labor and this is how you can tell a woman who's holding her baby and if her contractions were to birth the baby in second stage Every two minutes, then at about six minutes, she's going to go, oh, this one hurts. (laughs) She's so happy. I call it waiting for the grimace. And so that just means that this big contraction, if we go back to Varney's midwifery textbook, Varney says right there in, in physiologic management of third stage, the uterus has this huge contraction and changes shape, which forces the placenta off the wall of the uterus. And the placenta then involutes, it it folds in on itself and drops down into the introitus. And that contraction, that fundus is still working and it pushes down and pushes the placenta into the vaginal vault. And all of that happens without any drugs, without any fundal pressure, without any poking, without any prodding, without any pulling on the cord. It just happens. And that is expected management. So along comes postpartum hemorrhage. And sometimes the vessels of the uterus don't seal off for one reason or another. And I'll go into reasons in in just a moment. And you want to increase the contractibility of the uterus. 
you want to prevent postpartum hemorrhage and you want to rush the placenta out before the end of six minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes, because all of those times are normal. And so you give an immediate injection of uh, an oxytoxic, which is traditionally um, uh, pitocin or syntocin, and uh, and sometimes combined with methrogen, so that you get this huge clamp down of the placenta, which forces or of the uterus, which forces the placenta out, and your banking on that all of the uterine vessels are going to close. And you want to do that within the first 10 minutes after birth. So the the protocol for active management is to give the oxytoxic, if she isn't on Pitocin already, she's had a normal vaginal birth. And almost everywhere, every hospital that I go to that does facilitates um, physiologic birth, they still give Pitocin. They still want to control and get the placenta out ASAP. And that is active management. You are causing um, the uterus to contract. And so many hospitals that I've been in, um, they'll do fundal pressure. They'll push down on the top of the uterus after the baby's out and, and massage it deeply, which is very painful and give the injection. Uh, of course, the baby's not connected. They, they've clamped and cut the cord and they'll, they'll wrap uh, a hemostat around the cord and, and you hold on to it and you do controlled cord traction and until you feel that pop and, uh, and then you guide the placenta out, you deliver the placenta. When you described the use of Pitocin, which has become routine, unfortunately, and many women are now receiving it through an IV if they have had an IV port and they're not even being told, um, which is unethical, if not unlawful. But what you just described really emphasized, I think, to me, the risk for the first time ever. It's not just like this general risk of drugs like Pitocin, but are you saying that it is, it is very successful at getting the placenta out? Does it primarily do it by that contraction of the uterus or does it primarily do it by sealing off those vessels because physiologically the placenta is an effect of those vessels sealing off and in essence dislodging the placenta. Are you saying Pitocin doesn't do it that way? So there's this risk of successfully getting the placenta out, but now those vessels can be exposed and there's a higher risk of hemorrhage because <laughs> it's doing it backwards if that's how the drug <laughs> is doing it. Is that how you're saying it happens? Yes. It's, um, it's, in physiologic birth, we we wait. We wait for the vessels, the we call them retroplacental. They're behind the placenta. And that's that's where the, the two layers, I sh I should have brought my placenta with me. The the two <laughs> layers are are there. it's in a suitcase because I take it to class all the you time. You know, most listeners are actually envisioning a placenta when you say that, not yeah, some good, model good, that you good. use. Good, good. Okay. No, you're saying good. Let them think that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, you know, the placenta is the first thing that forms in, in embryology. 
the placenta is the very first thing. The uterine vessels are the very first thing that uh, that form as the embryo um, becomes a fetus. So those vessels are attached to the woman's uterus, and they have to disengage. They have to detach. It's not just about the uterus, but it's about the closure of the vessels that go from the fetus through the placenta back to the mother. This is the biggest reason for delayed cord clamping. And optimal cord clamping is the delivery of the placenta with an intact cord attached to the baby. So you consider it that delayed cord clamping can be done three minutes, two minutes. We argue over 90 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, all all of those. It can be anything. But optimal cord clamping is to treat the, the, the baby and the placenta as one unit and to, to birth the placenta in the time that it takes for baby to crawl up to the chest and stay in the place of what I call the sanctuary. In Spanish, the sanctuario. In Hebrew, the mikdash. The mikdash is the place inside the Ark of the Covenant where God resides. Yeah, so there's, there is a spiritual aspect about this as well. So yes, the uterine vessels are going to seal off and then the contraction comes that changes the shape of the uterus and, and expels the placenta. All of the research was done for active management to prevent postpartum hemorrhage, to seal those vessels off quickly by the force of the pitocin, by the force of the contraction that you're going to make the uterus artificially contract and evacuate the uterus quickly to prevent postpartum hemorrhage and shut the placenta down, shut the uterus down. And that's why we do the fundal pressure and the fundal massage in order to get any clots that were behind the uterus out and evacuate those as well. The question that I always propose, and I think your your expert that you, I, I love to listen to her podcast with you as Rachel Reed. Mm-hmm. And and the the person that I look at for all of the advice on delayed cord clamping are all of the articles that have been um, the research has been done by Judith Mercer, CNM, at the University of Rhode Island. It used to be Rhode Island State College. And she was the first CNM to receive NIH funding, National Institutes of Health funding, to do a randomized controlled trial. In 2002, she published um, in Midwifery Journal, um, she published the first comparative analysis of waiting at least one minute. (laughs) And it was done on premature babies uh, that were prior to 35 weeks born in by cesarean. And the results of delayed cord clamping were that all of the babies that had delayed cord clamping left the NICU 
sooner than the babies that had immediate cord clamping. So ICC and DCC. Could they state why, like better iron reserves, more T-cells? Did they point to why? They got all their blood. <laughs> in, in, that first, in that first study, they talked about hypovolemia versus the premature baby neonate receiving more blood volume. And of course, with blood volume comes more iron. And if we look at a 2018 article that was published in the Pediatric Journal, where uh, Judith Mercer and a group of neonatologists and a group of pediatric neurologists got together And they looked at a four-minute delay of cord clamping, and they looked at ferritin levels at four months. And the reason that the pediatric neurologists were involved was because they proved by MRI on those four-month-old babies that those babies had a much higher rate of myelinization of the neurons in the brain. And so... I stand in front of audiences of doctors and in medical schools and in, and in, and with midwives, and I say, if you clamp the cord too soon, you're preventing the brain from organizing the actual structure of the things that will create intelligence and empathy and and all of these things that that uh, take place when when we either have delayed cord clamping. And if we're going to have delayed clamp, cord clamping, why can we not wait for, for optimal cord clamping, physiologic birth of the placenta? That's a strong argument for optimal cord clamping. It's a very strong argument. What was your... Be, I, I want to go back for a second because um, I, I know when you were discussing fundal massage, we get a lot of questions about that. And I wanted to just make one comment on it before we move on to the next thing. My understanding of fundal massage is that if you're given Pitocin fundal massage, actually the addition of fundal massage with Pitocin has no additional benefit. It does not help prevent any further postpartum hemorrhage. Additionally, fundal massage while the placenta is still attached is not a good idea. So really, we should be keeping our hands off the belly. Fundal massage is, in my opinion, only needed after the baby's born if there is excessive bleeding and you're trying to manage. If you're trying to manage a hemorrhage, and even then, don't go to the fundus. Go to the um, to the symphysis pubis. Where where is the where is the blood coming out? <laughs> you know, uh, don't tr- it, you you you're just messing with it. So the question that I ask everybody, okay, we've all read. Many people haven't read Judith Mercer's articles. I send them after every workshop. I send them at least nine articles that were written by Judith Mercer and a few that were written by Rachel Reed. And please read this research. Look at it yourself. Make your own decisions. I want, I want doctors and midwives to make informed decisions also um, after they've looked at the research. Um, but my, and, and then I go on to the research on postpartum hemorrhage, how to prevent a PPH, 
um, how to manage a PPH, how to assess the blood loss with a PPH, what constitutes a PPH, a postpartum hemorrhage. So, um, and as I look at the articles about preventing postpartum hemorrhage by active management of third stage, nobody mentions where the baby is. Where's the baby? Well, the baby's cord was immediately cut and put over onto the warmer. It is not with the mother. Right. As if it's an unrelated issue, you're saying? As if the baby's not an essential component to helping prevent postpartum hemorrhage or stop one that's in action. (laughs) Right. They've separated the unit. The whole point is keep it together and this doesn't happen. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. You know, it's like that. I I can see the light bulbs go off when I'm in these groups of doctors and midwives and, and, and then their questions come. For years, I've talked with women about, and couples about the fact that one intervention leads to the next. But what I think most people fail to understand is separation of mother and baby is an intervention. It's a very extreme intervention. Separation of mother and baby is an intervention. And I think most of us are conditioned only to think of medical or chemical interventions, but we have to think of these biological interventions. The risk of separation, the risk associated with separation of mother and baby is actually like extreme. It's dangerous. It's, it's a massive intervention. And if we changed one thing in birth, if we kept moms and babies together, we could dramatically influence breastfeeding rates, reduce postpartum hemorrhage, postpartum depression, all kinds of things are influenced by this. And so this also means that you have to understand that physiologic third stage is perfectly normal to facilitate through the water and in the water. There's there's no difference between physiologic third stage on the bed and physiologic third stage in the water. If you've had a physiologic second stage in the water, then you sit there and wait. Now, with my own third birth, I birthed in an outdoor hot tub the the evening before Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving Eve, and it was in Southern California. And we had put a tent over the hot tub. We built a structure. I had supervised the whole thing. We had heaters like you see in a restaurant, outdoor restaurant seating area. We put the heaters there, the propane heaters. And so it was nice and cozy and warm and all of that. But I had a, I had a typical third baby on again, off again labor. And when I, got into the tub, it was about um, two hours from start to finish, four hours altogether for the labor. And I call it wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Baby's born into the water. And then we sat and we waited for the placenta. And I personally, as a former active midwife, I never cut the cord until the placenta delivered and after the placenta delivered. And then I left it up to the couple. And even today, when I'm facilitating a birth with someone, 
with a, with another midwife at the birth center where I work, the Bliss Birth and and Women's Wellness Center. Um, we will birth the placenta in the water, and it usually is about twenty minutes to a half an hour, and um, and that twenty minutes and half an hour with the lights low with no talking, with just observing the baby. And yes, by state law, I have to take her blood pressure every 15 minutes during that time. And I need to listen to the baby's heart sounds and breath sounds in that time. But I do it so unobtrusively that the mother and father are just there the mother and our partner, sometimes it's two women, sometimes it's mother and father, sometimes it's mother and grandmother, whoever she wants to support her, they can just be there with the baby. And that is essential for physiologic third stage. It's even more important not to interrupt that skin to skin and ask her questions and and distract her oxytocin because she's getting the highest peak of oxytocin that she will have for her entire lifespan in those 20 minutes after birth. And so if we turn on the lights and force the placenta out and give the injection and, okay, get out of the tub, it's right, you know, rush, 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 rush. That's why you have friggin' hemorrhage. <laughs> It's so important. I always tell moms when I'm doing prenatal, even breastfeeding consults with them or any type of prenatal consult about birth, how important it is to stay in your birth zone after the baby's born. Because in the hospital, especially, as soon as the baby's out, it's all bells and whistles and excitement and nobody's thinking really about the mom anymore. And the mom isn't even thinking about the mom anymore. She, all the attention is, you know, going to the baby, which of course is somewhat normal, but you really have to kind of rein it in and keep yourself in check and know that this birth is not over until, until the placenta is born. And if we can stay in that zone and stay in the bonding and keep it calm and quiet and dark, like you just said, and stay just engaged with our baby. And of course, keep the unit together, which is so critical the placenta comes easily, but when it's all disrupted and the mom is completely thrown out of her labor zone, of course the placenta is going to struggle coming because you've just shut it all down. Exactly. Exactly. Cynthia. Barbara, I have two questions on what you just talked about. Uh, one is the fact that I understood that um, it was my understanding at the start of this episode that you said most placentas come out on the third contraction, which really surprised me. I had a whole lot of questions in my head when you mentioned that, and I was planning on coming back to it. And let now me, you said 20 to 30 minutes. So what did I misunderstand? Let me, just, let me just clarify. There's two differences. Okay. The placenta separates from the wall of the uterus after three contractions. Oh, doesn't necessarily come out yet. Got it. So sometimes it's just right there in the introitus of the vagina. And it's up to the mother to push it out. And I tell women that that it's going to be up to you to release it. And in the, in the past couple of years that I've been working at the birth center, I'll tell the mom, 
put your fingers inside and tell me, is the placenta right there? And they'll go, oh my gosh, it's really squishy. And I said, now look, you just pushed out this beautiful baby. You released this gorgeous baby. Now comes the easy part. This one has no bones. There's no head. There's no pelvis. Just take a deep breath and make those same sounds that you made when you released the baby. And those placentas just come right out. And we have the floating bowl ready. You know, I don't, I don't have the, the, the cord clamp and the cord cutter and I, I, I don't bring those to the tub side. I don't, don't bring those to the bedside. What I do bring is uh, the bowl, and then I'll grab a Ziploc bag, and I'll put the placenta in the Ziploc bag, and I'll zip it closed with just the cord sticking out, and then I'll get a plastic grocery bag that has handles, and I take it, and I hand the placenta in the grocery bag to the father. Well, I'll put the I'll put, to get the mom out of the tub. I'll put the baby on the father's chest and give him the bag to hold. I say, "You hold this while we help the mom over to the bed." And we just take it slowly, slowly get in bed. I'll take the baby from the father's chest to the to the abuela, the grandmother's chest. And you should see those moms take off their shirts when those grandmothers, when I tell them, well, baby wants to be skin to skin with you. Okay. And, and then have the grandmother present the baby to the mom in the bed. Everything's done. Everything's done. When do I weigh the baby? When do I, well, I've just checked the baby completely while the baby is on the mother's chest in the tub. I've done a full neurologic exam. Eyes, hearing, cry, listen to heart tones, listen to breath sounds. Go ahead. Just to clarify, when you say you've done a complete exam, much of that is just your observations. You're not not taking the baby through this no. series of no. neurological no. tests, right? This is this is you looking at the baby's movements, watching how the baby breathes. I'm sure you do listen with a stethoscope, but there are so many ways that you can evaluate the baby without even touching them. I call it masterly observation and masterly inactivity. You know what you're looking for. As a matter of fact, when the baby's eyes are open and blinking, that is the highest neurologic proof that this baby is in its body. What's the first thing I say to babies after they're out? I say it in my mind because they're mind readers. What your mind thinks, the baby perceives. What your mind thinks, the mother perceives. So what's the first thing that I say? Sometimes I say it out loud, but I want the baby to hear the mother's voice. And so I say, welcome. You made it. You're in a body. This is amazing. And do you know that the first breath, the very first breath that the baby emits is an exhale to get rid of the buildup of carbon dioxide within the lung cells? Because if you go back and read Judith Mercer, Neonatal Transitional Physiology, 
the lungs have to fill with blood, the lung capillaries that surround every single of VLR space have to fill with blood to take the fluids out of the lungs. Now, fluids don't come out of the lungs by holding a baby upside down or rubbing a baby or stimulating a baby. Barbara, the other question I had for you was that you said something that uh, our mutual friend, Nancy Weiner, midwife and author Nancy Weiner says, she always leaves the cord intact until the placenta is entirely out. And I once asked Nancy why, and I just want to hear why you have the same practice. Nancy said that if a baby is still attached and has any difficulty breathing and needs oxygen, that placenta will continue to deliver any necessary oxygen to the baby provided that the cord is intact. Is that your same rationale or do you have a different one? I have, I have three different reasons. Number one, the most important is that every single human being on the planet needs to fill the lungs with blood from the placenta immediately after the baby's born. So you mean the capillaries in the tissue of the lungs, you don't mean filling the lungs where the oxygen is? No. Right. No. You mean the lung tissue? The oxygen comes from the capillaries. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. You, the VOR spaces. Oh, every... oh, okay. It's not a respiratory thing? No, this is before the first breath. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. So we're, we're talking about before the first breath. Mm-hmm. If a baby has a delay mm-hmm. in initiating the first breath, mm-hmm. you want to make sure that that placenta is still giving oxygen. Okay. You want to make sure that, 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 um, that the capillaries surrounding it looks like a web around every single alveolar space there's 250 million alveolar spaces in your lungs and in a neonatal full term baby there's 50 million 50 million lung cells and all of those lung cells are filled with a sticky surfactant fluid let, let me just go back to prenatally and throughout the birth, the the lungs only receive 8% of the full cardiac um, output. So the, the fetus's heart is beating and sending blood to the essential parts, to the brain, to the kidneys, to the liver, to the lungs. But they're bypassed. The placenta is the baby's kidneys. The placenta is the baby's lungs. The placenta is the baby's skin. So all of those things in the fetus are not filled with blood. They're, and so, especially in the lungs, that low arterial pressure creates a high pulmonary resistance. That means that nothing can go inside. Nothing can get in. No bacteria can get in, no, and even meconium can't get in until, and that's a whole nother area. That's a whole nother podcast. Okay. This, the, what you're just saying right now, Barbara, is so important for people to understand that that neonatal transitional physiology that people really don't have a good understanding of is so critical and so much is happening in that moment 
so incredibly much is happening. That transition is massive for a baby. So, so when a baby when a baby is born and we are in there vigorously rubbing them, shaking them, spanking them, hanging them upside down, how can this poor body of a brand new baby go through this incredible transition that it has to make smoothly when there's so much disruption? This is the most important, most critical period in every human being's life. Number number one is fill the lungs, the lung capillaries with blood. And that doesn't happen until the shunts in the heart close. Let's go backwards. What closes what closes the shunts in the heart? I talked about it in in 100. The nitrogen receptors in the baby's cheeks. The ni- nitrogen receptors. So that happens when the the baby hits the air. A breech baby and a water baby don't do that. The airborne vertex baby, head down baby, does that right away. And so the water baby and the breech baby are delayed in filling those capillaries. So therefore, you must not cut the cord at all until that transition happens. So the second reason, the stem cells and the T cells. We want to give the placental blood. Okay, a premature baby at the time of birth has one half of its whole cardiac blood flow in the placenta. A full-term or at-term baby at the time of birth has one-third of its blood in the placenta. That could be up to 100 milliliters of blood. They don't take 100 milliliters of your blood for blood donation. You would probably die. They surely don't take a third. No, they don't take a third of your blood. No, Uh uh-uh. So number two is that placental blood is rich in stem cells and T cells and ferritin iron. There is enough iron just in the placental blood, just in that 40 to 100 milliliters of blood to sustain a baby from birth to its full first year. That's an argument for delaying cord clamping. But is it an argument for keeping the cord intact after the cord has stopped pulsating until the placenta is out? I'm getting there. (laughs) That's interesting because by now the baby has the blood. So there's more to it. It it has the blood, but not all of the blood. Okay. Um, Okay. Every time I, uh, if I want to have a blood sample for type and cross match, where do I get it? Where do I get it? I get it out of the placenta. I don't take it from the baby. I don't take it from the cord. I take it from the placenta. Because even as the, the placenta delivers and it involutes, and it is pushing that last bolus of blood into the baby. It is like squeezing the last drops. And that it, I want that baby to receive every T cell, every stem cell, every single cell of blood that has iron in it. Okay. Why did, why did they tell us in uh, Florence Dressler's book, Feminology, A Guide for Womankind? She was an MD. and. And she said in there, absolutely, 
do not cut the cord until the placenta delivers. Because also you're cutting the cord and then you're not going to get the retroplacental clots. This is the third reason. It's going to be boggy. It's not going to get rid of all the blood that's supposed to go into the baby. And you're going to have a heavier placenta and it's going to have, and it's going to take longer for those uterine vessels to close off. And you're going to get more clots behind there. You're going to get more hemorrhage. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. 
because that is another mechanism in the placenta separating from the uterine wall is the draining of the placenta, the emptying of the placenta. Exactly. Nobody talks about that. Exactly. Barbara, you had told us about a woman whose placenta took a very long time to come out. This will curl a provider's hair. Um, It was six hours. I had one client uh, for whom it took five. So there was no urgent medical situation at hand, which I think is the first thing we all have to appreciate because they're rushing women now. They're just pressuring them and rushing them and tugging and giving them fundal massage and um, but you, you mentioned earlier in the episode, there are reasons the vessels might not close off. Do you feel you covered all those reasons in the episode or did we leave um, any that you didn't get a into? tired uterus, a okay. tired uterus, um, hypovolemia. So, uh, which might be some bleeding during second stage, but also when a mother is, uh, dehydrated. If she's in a state of acidosis and the baby's in a state of acidosis, it's all the medical complications. If she's had Pitocin to start a labor, the vessels aren't going to close as easily. So it's safer. We've learned from Rachel Reed to have Pitocin in the third stage of labor. If it is a medicalized birth of any kind, Pitocin, epidural, and it is safer not to, if you had a physiologic birth. There you go. So you agree with that same research? Totally. hundred percent. Um, there is one thing I feel I have to ask you and get your opinion on, um, in the years that I've been teaching, which is 16 years now, I've, I see trends of course, like the rest of us. And I have been personally horrified at how many women tell us they are experiencing manual extraction of the placenta. I can't, I can't believe any woman endures such a thing. And it's starting to become quite commonplace from what I'm, from what I'm sensing. Can you comment on that? I'm I'm horrified by it. Can you tell me when it ever makes sense to do that? Because I, I don't I don't have that like, does it ever make sense? And when? Sounds like a nightmare to experience personally. It's very painful. It's ex- it, it's excruciating. Why does anyone do this to women? Why is this happening? I saw it. I saw it. Remember, my my first my first birth in nursing school that I observed was 52 years ago. Okay, I know I don't look that old, but I'm 71. And I, um, yeah, and and it was par for the course to do manual removals because every woman had a spinal block. And it, it was it was such medical management. It was it was incredible medical management. When I worked in Russia, it was all. But it's happening now, Barbara. It's a trend happening now. It's becoming, I I really think, commonplace. And I fear, looking at past trends in the recent years, I fear it's becoming routine in some places. So is there ever an argument for doing it? Should a woman, there's no, okay. No. So if the placenta is taking forever to come out. I have seen midwives do that in the case of a a severe postpartum hemorrhage. You want to do that in a delivery room with with some sort of sterility, do it under a controlled circumstance. But why would that help the hemorrhage? Why would going in there and removing the placenta, especially if those vessels haven't fully closed and now you're exposing more of them because they were attached, why would that even possibly help a hemorrhage? If it's um, a, a, a placenta accreta, if it's if it's something that it, that has to be medically managed. And there are situations when that would happen, mm-hmm. but okay. So I, in I, rare instances, then in very rare, 
Very rare. Okay. Very so rare. we're not going to say never. We're going to say very rare. Very rare. Very rare. You know, the panic hormones set in on the provider's side. And this is this is one of the things that you're taught to go in and manually extract the placenta to control a postpartum hemorrhage. It I, should- I was taught it. I was taught it too. Um, I, I think your point about the provider fear kicking in is really important because providers do the same thing when a baby appears to be stuck at the shoulders. Rather than waiting yes. for the body to make the adjustments, we're in there rotating, moving, pulling, extracting. And I think that it's very similar with the placenta. If there's concern that yes. it's partially separated, the woman's bleeding, there could be massive clots forming behind it. They want to get in there and do something to expedite the process. But we're saying that that isn't necessarily the right thing to do. The biggest concern of providers is. My reputation, livelihood is so wrapped in having a healthy live birth and a healthy baby and a healthy mother. Can you comment on how during a C-section, the placenta has to be manually extracted right away before the body is ready? Is that, no. why, is that why there's an increased risk of hemorrhage with C-section or do you have any oh, other? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But it doesn't. It doesn't. You could, you could wait. You could you'd have absolutely. to just leave the mom open and you'd have to allow all the blood to transfer. And yeah. that's something they could potentially do. Well, they, they have started delayed cord clamping for, for. Mm-hmm. Yes, they have. Um, mm-hmm. And skin to skin. Everybody's uh, the fear factor comes in again, and everyone's in a big in. damn hurry. That's a big part yes. of it. That's why this nonsense about well, we well, like to give the cord thirty seconds. Oh, we like to we, no more than sixty seconds. It's so ridiculous to think that anything well um, it, is is ideal when you think about how we've evolved to this okay. through this process. Trisha's Trisha said it before when we talked about cutting the cord and the the baby gets separated that separation we're either we're either moving towards connection and that brain growth or we're moving towards separation and i've had a few doctors who've had life changes like um um dr arbel in Netanya at laniato hospital in israel she came to me with tears and said you changed my life, Barbara. You changed my life. When you said it was okay to wait for the placenta, when you said it was okay to to wait for the baby's shoulders, when you said it was okay to deliver this baby in the water, to to have a hands-off birth, it changed everything. And that's when practices change. People would ask me, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a I'm a traditional home birth midwife, but I get paid to go tell doctors what not to do. <laughs> That's a dream job. <laughs> it's yeah. a dream job. And with that, it's people like you who are using the technology to to the best advantage. And um, And while I'm cooking, I listen to podcasts and I always listen to yours. I, I really love the speakers that come on and the experts that come on. I go back and 
And I think everybody should sign up for your Patreon um, to get you. the full meal deal. It's it's <laughs> just, it's one of the best places to get information. All of my students, I say, you have to listen to Cynthia Overgaard and Trisha Ludwig and, um, and be a down-to-birth follower. You just, you can't be in my class and not do that. <laughs> Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. You gave me such chills when you said that when every baby is born, you you silently say welcome to them. It took me right back to the moment when my third was born. My second was a water birth. My third was an unassisted water birth, um, unintentionally, but it just, it just happened that way. But the first words that came out of my mouth were you're here. Like it just felt so important to, to say something like that. Not like, Oh, you're so cute or some other, it's just like you had to acknowledge their arrival in that way. And it was that eye to eye contact and those words and, there was nothing else to say in that moment.